Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First of all, it's Bishop Harry Jackson of the High Impact Leadership Coalition and the Reconciled Church in light of the recent conflict in Charlottesville, Virginia, shared a biblical perspective on dealing with matters concerning race. Plus, you'll be hearing from Christian author, speaker, and apologist Josh McDowell, who has crafted a devotional book designed to help teach the truth of the scriptures to teenagers. Then shifting to American history, integrating a faith perspective, some comments from Jenny Cody, who has written a young adult historical novel that concentrates on the time prior to the American Revolution, concentrating on a godly man named Patrick Henry. And on this edition of The Intersection, it's Michael Spurlock, who once pastored a dying church outside Nashville, a church revitalized when Burmese refugees began to attend it. That story is told in a forthcoming feature film. Also, some commentary about the new popular meaning of diversity, which actually doesn't mean that at all in the eyes of some. William Briggs, who writes for The Stream, provides some insight. Finally, it's Carla Akins, who has been involved in ministry work at education, sharing observations and lessons that developed from her raising twin boys with autism. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Harry Jackson is senior pastor of Hope Christian Church in the greater Washington, D.C. area, co-founder of the Reconcile Church and founder of the High Impact Leadership Coalition. Following the tragic weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, he spoke with me about matters of race, dealing with racism from a biblical perspective. With inspiration for the church, here's Bishop Harry Jackson. Before everybody goes back to sleep, <laughs> you know what hmm. happened in Baltimore, there's a riot. A group of people got together and decided they were going to have unity in the church. Um, Baltimore uh, Multicultural Prayer uh, Network has done an amazing job praying. They work with Billy Graham Rapid Response. They have Chief Russell of the Baltimore City Police working with them, who's also... Um, Chief Russell is also an associate pastor at a Baptist church, believe it or not. And so his church is in the inner city, but by day, he's community relations guy. So they all came together. They're doing incredible work. So as a result, the urgency of violence a year plus so ago has now gotten less and less and they're praying, they're giving uh, alms, if you will, to the poor. They're empowering churches, and they have a strategy for even Operation Blue Shield to come in in days ahead with a strategy of making communities safe through strategic dialogues and partnerships creating jobs in those communities that were so tormented, and then ultimately having the desert bloom like a rose. So from our unity, we have got to strategically unite. And at our website, thereconcilechurch.org, we have seven bridges to peace. We need to look at top three on my list of seven bridges to peace. We need... Uh, to create educational bridge, black and Hispanic kids perform worse 
in academics, reading, writing, arithmetic, than does the average white kid. And there are a lot of causes to that. But if every black and brown church decided that by the um, by the third grade, kids would be on grade level reading or identified with special help, special tutors, etc. If we broke it down step by step, church by church, you could heal part of the problem that leaves some people on a trajectory to be imprisoned. Second, criminal justice reform. What happens when nonviolent returning citizens come back home, you can't get a place to stay, can't get a job. Uh, we're talking right now with the White House about a special program to address that very thing from a, a national level. And the church has got to lead the way because it can take in the families. Then third, bringing jobs back to the hood. If I don't have a job and a chance at a career of some sort, I'm cheated out of a sense of destiny. And so minority folk, whether they're linguistically challenged, meaning English isn't their first language, or they have other issues, again, the church can operate in very practical spaces. So the reconciledchurch.org, the immediate problem of changing someone's heart will happen when we get more people saved. The structural challenges that we on the service call racism may not be racism at all, but it's aggravated if someone's black or brown or Asian. And so that's my shorter take on a very long and complicated mm. problem. But we can do this. Jesus has called us to this. It's part of being salt and light, and we can do it on our watch. Harry Jackson here on The Intersection. Learn more at thereconcilechurch.org or thehopeconnection.org. Well, joining me recently on the Meeting House program was Christian author, speaker, and apologist Josh McDowell, who shared information about his 365-day devotional book for teenagers entitled Hashtag Truth, 365 Devotions for Teens, Connecting Life and Faith. From that conversation, this is Josh McDowell. What we need to do is counter it in building a relationship with their children and incorporating truth into that relationship. And this is what I think hashtag truth will do for parents and grandparents. Well, the other thing that you you mentioned is that young people don't see the scriptures as being relevant to their lives. That truth is not relative or is not relevant to them. I guess you could say it is and of course, another thing is it is relative to so many people. But when when you think that that people are not really grasping hold of the truth, not seeing how that applies, that's obviously a disconnect. And it really, to me, seems like that you know it's something that that parents, grandparents, the church in general is really struggling with because young people aren't seeing that this truth is important to them. Apparently, well, I got to be careful how I say this. There's two reasons there. One is that the way truth is taught, truth is taught as truth, something to believe. Truth should never be taught apart from the context of relationships 
all truth was given to impact relationships. Our relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Mom, Dad, our neighbor, the lost, the found, everyone. All truth was given to impact relationships. And we need to teach it that way. That's why it's called, it's, it's calling for a new apologetic. Second, now boy, it's not true of all, thank God, but for many parents, they're not living out their faith where it's attractive to their children. If we do not make our faith attractive to our children, then why should they listen to what we say? Because if they listen to what we say, they'll have what we have and they don't want it. Why should they do what mm. we say? Why should they read our Bible? If we read our Bible, then we'll be like mom and dad, and I don't like what mom and dad are like. And so we've got to make our children thirsty for our faith. So it's teaching truth in the context of relationship and living life, as Paul says in First Thessalonians 2 and even First Thessalonians 1, the way we lived before you is what convinced you. What are some areas that you cover, some spiritual insights that you would want to communicate through this book? Well, I'll give you the background for it. My son and I wrote a book called Unshakable Truth. The thrust was how to present truth in the 21st century. We went all the way back to Justin Martyr, one uh, something A.D., and he made a statement about the first century church, said we have not created true followers of Jesus Christ, and we have not created a generation that's passing their faith on to the next generation. Why? In 100 years of the first century church, there were 25,000 believers. So he made several statements, and one was this. There are 12 truths you must engender, ingrained in a person's life if they're going to become a true follower of Christ. Not 11, not 13, but 12. Well, that and a couple of other things he said took the church from the first century, 25,000 believers, to 200 years later to 20 million. And one was this. He said these 12 truths, for example, one, that God exists, God's word, original sin, Christ's atonement, God becoming human, living the transformed life, Jesus' bodily resurrection, the Trinity, God's kingdom, the church, and Christ's return. And so what I did, I took these 12 truths, divided them up to the 12 months. And the first one, does God exist? The first 30 devotionals. Can you imagine? This is thrilling. Because mm. in a devotional, you can't say too much. It's limited. But when you have 30 in a row on God, all practical, down-to-earth, and easy to understand— when you finish that month, you have quite an intriguing concept of who God is and how he's relevant to your life. And then we go into God's Word, the Scriptures, 30 days, actually 28 with February, 28 days on reinforcing a child's mind, thinking, and behavior, the truth and the effectiveness of God's Word. And then going into original sin, you've got to understand sin or you cannot understand human condition and culture. And so I go through all 12 of these during the 12 months. Josh McDowell here on The Intersection. Learn more at josh.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast with author Jenny Cody. 
Her latest book is entitled The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, part of the Epic Order of the Seven series of young adult novels. In our recent conversation, she discussed the premise of the book, describing events leading up to the American Revolution centered around Patrick Henry. Here now is Jenny Cody. Isn't it a shame that this man called the voice of the revolution is only known for seven little words, um, give me liberty or give me death. And what people don't realize about that speech, which is is considered next to um, the Gettysburg Address, probably the second most important speech in American history. Um, Patrick Henry was the only one who, let me back up, 13 years before, was the first one to call the King of England a tyrant in the Parsons Calls case. And then two years later in the Stamp Act resolves. Okay, remember the Stamp Act. And and Patrick Henry was a 29-year-old young rookie Burgess. And everybody is kind of murmuring around, and no one is speaking up about it. And he was supposed to keep his peace and not speak up. And he, he realized, he says, look, if we don't call England out on this right now, they're going to trample our liberties from here on out. And it was his resolve that blazed through the colonies and even caused the Sons of Liberty to form after Patrick Henry had done his resolve. And that's the speech Patrick Henry cared to be remembered for, but we most remember him for liberty or death. But here's the context. Three weeks before he rallied the nation to independence to warn America to arm because the war was coming, his wife had died, leaving him with six children. Mm. So can you imagine being a widower with six children, the weight of the world of grief on your shoulders, and he rises up and he rallies a nation to independence. And three weeks later, sure enough, Lexington and Concord, and he was right. So, you know, you look at greatness today of persevering through trials, and Patrick Henry had a lifetime of persevering and overcoming. He was a failure at everything he tried until he found his calling to be an attorney in The Voice. So he's an incredible, incredible um, inspiration and role model for kids. But he was a godly Christian man, too. Well, let's talk about that. How Mm -hmm. was Patrick Henry inspired by God in his life to, well, do the things he did and and say the things he said? Well, interestingly enough, he had a religious war happening in his household. Let me explain. As you know, the Church of England— was the church of the colonies, you know, and it was Virginia. It was the state church, okay? And so it was an Anglican church, and you had to go to the Anglican church. Patrick Henry was named for his uncle, the Reverend Patrick Henry, who was, you know, an Anglican um, uh, pastor there in Hanover County, Virginia. So his father, John, and uncle were of the Anglican side, but Patrick Henry's mother, Sarah, uh, started following the dissenter movement, if you're familiar with that, and these this new craze of Presbyterians, okay, and Samuel Davies that came to San, to uh, Hanover County, and so there were arguments under his own roof, which is the right, right way to worship God, and so he heard both sides of it, and he saw the 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 quest for religious liberty, you know, he. As when he later became a, an attorney, he actually went and defended Baptist ministers thrown in prison for preaching, you know, without a license, and these dissenters, and he bailed them out. He he remained in the Anglican Church his whole life, but he was such a godly man, and he, he spent an hour in the Word every day. And so 
And all of his speech was laced with scripture, all of his famous speeches, and he never wrote anything down. So this word was in him. But, you know, much of what we read that Patrick Henry said is scripture. Jenny Cody here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to epicorderoftheseven.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website at meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to and download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Michael Spurlock currently serves on the clergy staff at St. Thomas Church in New York City. Formerly, he was the vicar of All Saints Episcopal Church in Smyrna, Tennessee, outside Nashville. In a recent conversation, he discussed the story of how a group of refugees from Burma helped to revitalize his dying church, the series of events upon which the movie All Saints is based. Here now from that conversation is Michael Spurlock. When Ye Wen, the the leader of this community, that small contingent came to me and told me what their needs were. I thought, oh, come on. Uh, we have troubles of our own, and you know, we, we can't even take care of ourselves here at All Saints, it seems like. Um, but this is where, uh, where God is so interesting and wonderful, is that he sent us more need. We thought we needed provision, but he sent us more need, and that turned out to be the exact thing we needed, uh, was a... Um, a, a real ministry uh, to enliven our congregation uh, and uh, to engage in God's work and and what is well it's so hard to unpack this because so much happened after the refugees arrived at our door uh, so much was revitalized by God and uh, that I think at the end of the day it was just a matter of being confronted with this situation that didn't seem like it was going, it was just going to make things worse. I also remember what Jesus said, and that's, um, you know, things like if uh, your brother is in need, if he doesn't have a coat, if he doesn't have a drink of water, if he doesn't, if he's in bondage and you don't visit him, uh, if you do it, you've done it to me, and if you haven't done it, you've not done it to me. And I couldn't see the way to say no to these folks. So what I wound up saying in the face of this need was, look, I, you know, we're pretty vulnerable here, but I don't know, and I don't know how it's going to work out. You come on, you join us, and we'll figure it out together. And God blessed us for that openness and that willingness to take a chance um, that you know, not to give the story away too soon, but uh, things out, things worked out better than could have ever imagined because of that. The very first and dominant thing that God did was he told me what we were supposed to do with all this. And I was, uh, at the time that we were about to receive and accept an offer on the property after many months of waiting, uh, I took a walk on the back of our church property on that land I was telling you about, and God spoke to me, and he said, Michael, 
I have given you farmland and I have sent you 65 expert farmers from the other side of the world. You're supposed, you're supposed to start a farm here on the property and, uh, and, and that will save the church. Reluctantly, I ran out to my office and I first called my, my lay leader and said, God's told me uh, we're not supposed to accept the offer, but we're supposed to start a farm here. And he said, great, call the bishop. And so reluctantly, I did that thinking, you know, the bishop's going to think I'm crazy. But I called him and I said, you know, I was just out back and God told me we're supposed to start a farm here. And he said, great. Isn't it just like God to show up at the 11th hour? And that's what we wound up doing, uh, working with the Koran to start a working farm on the back of our property. And I used to think that was the point. Hey, we saved the church. Uh, but that wasn't the point at all. The point was we saved the church, which provided a safe place to live out an incredible ministry with a people that were entirely different from us uh, so that my existing congregation could learn what leading a Christian life was all about and to grow spiritually and the Korean to learn the same thing, but also to help them integrate into their new home. Um, and so the work that resulted from the farm was the more important work. That was um, the work of human relationship in service of Jesus Christ. Mm. Tell me maybe the greatest faith lesson that you learned as a result of this overall series of events. I think the fundamental lesson I learned is that God is alive and well and still at work. So if you're if you're wondering, where's God? Where's God in all this? I'm here to tell you, he's here. He's busy. He's doing the old, familiar, and wonderful things he's always done. Uh, and it's, well, it's just whether are we attentive to that truth, living truth, uh, or are we missing a lot of opportunities and a lot of blessings by being attentive to his presence and his action. Michael Spurlock here on The Intersection. You can learn more about the film at allsaintsmovie.com. The film premieres in theaters on August 25th. The Intersection continues now with William Briggs, a senior contributor to the website The Stream and author of the book Uncertainty, The Soul of Modeling, Probability, and Statistics. In a recent conversation, he provided some analysis on the misuse of the word diversity in light of the recent situation at Google in which an employee was terminated because he espoused a diverse view from the acceptable norm within the company. Here now with some insight is William Briggs. So this guy, James Damore, who is, uh, by all accounts, even Google's accounts, a stellar employee, posted on to a internal Google forum uh, a document called Google's Ideological Echo Chamber, in which he warned that uh, conservatives in Google are in constant fear of being fired if they speak out. And he said that there was a culture of shaming people on the right and a consistent misrepresentation of, uh, of their views. And that would have been fine, I think, if he had stuck to that sort of stuff. People would have perhaps grumbled. They wouldn't have said too much. But he said one more thing that went one step too far, 
and caused him to be canned. And what he said was, and I don't know if your audience is ready for this, they ought to prepare themselves, that men and women are different. Oh my. And the left at the, the exploded and imploded. They went nuts. They went bananas. It, one of the things that Damore said was that, uh, looked at some research and said, well, you know, men and women uh, can react different emotionally to news. And in protest of this, the very next day, which I thought was hilarious, NPR reported a huge number of women refused to go to work at Google. They were so emotionally distraught over hearing the possibility that women may become emotionally distraught over news. And so they called for his firing, Damore's firing, and the uh, CEO of Google, being a coward, uh, fired the man. And he himself will be okay. He's fine. He's got several job offers already and uh, is exploring, as they say, legal options. Mm. So I think he'll be fine, but it's all the other people who are left at Google uh, who are not uh, hardcore leftists that we have to worry about. Well, let's talk about this word diversity. This is a word that, in the proper context, can be a very good thing. And I know that from a, from a biblical standpoint, diversity, again, laid out in a, in a very good context, is a very good thing as we appreciate one another's differences, recognizing that God has created each of us with particular strengths and, and giftedness that we can use for, for his glory. Now, when we take those, those gifts and we function as part of a, of a unit, of a, a church, of a body, that's, you know, that's a great thing. Even taking our gifts, our skills into a company and using those, hey, that is wonderful. Unfortunately, that word has been hijacked. And you mentioned, you mentioned actually the word unity in the same general, uh, the same general phrase as diversity. So here you have companies, you have entities you know, all around the world that are, they champion diversity, but what they're really getting at is they want uniformity, i.e. they want everyone to think the same way. So yeah, if you dare be quote unquote diverse, you could find yourself either at the bottom of the food chain or completely off of the food chain. So, so comment on how diversity has now become really a, a code word for for uniformity or forced acceptance of ideas that don't line up with your own. You're, you're saying it exactly right. I mean, th- think you, you, you mentioned uh, Scripture, you mentioned the Bible. Think about the parable of the talents. A taskmaster is given five talents to one person, to another two, and to another one, because each of these men had differing abilities. So, you know, inequality is built into the system, and inequality is not a bad thing. Not everybody is good at exactly the same things as everybody else. But the cult of diversity, the cult of equality, believes that everybody is a blank slate, that if two people were raised identically, they would in the end behave identically. And if they are not going to behave identically naturally, they're going to be made to behave identically through this cult of diversity. Diversity is uniformity. Diversity is strict, mandatory quotas. Diversity is uniformity of opinion, uniformity of action. Diversity has nothing to do with the plain language English meaning of the word. It, diversity is 
rigorous control of all human actions. And this is what they're going for. Whether they get there or not, that's the question. William Briggs here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to thestream.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Carla Akins, who has been involved in ministry as well as being an educator. In our conversation, she shared about her experiences in raising twin sons with autism as she relates in the book, A Pair of Miracles, A Story of Autism, Faith, and Determined Parenting. From that conversation, this is Carla Akins. They're 22 years old now, and they're doing wonderful. Awesome. They went from being very severe, having severe autism, to now it's more of the mild um, symptoms. And when you meet them, you might not even know that they have autism. You might know they have an intellectual disability, but their autistic behaviors have really diminished. They still have a lot of anxiety. They still get stuck on issues, and it's hard to unstick them, but they're doing marvelous. They both have part-time jobs. Um, They work a couple of days a week, half a day, and they have a little golf cart. They drive around town. They haven't been able to pass the written driver's ed test yet, but they keep wanting to try, so we keep letting them try. That is... And, yeah, we're really proud of them. Well, I think that there are some principles here that you've experienced with your sons that could be applicable to not only parents of children with disabilities, but also really any time you have a a situation where parents are struggling with various difficulties with their kids. And so let's talk about some of the, the spiritual ramifications here. One of the issues that I understand that you talk about in the book is this whole concept of wrestling with God in difficult times. Talk about how that was expressed in your life. Right. Well, when we lost our our foster baby, that was probably the hardest thing I'd ever gone through because, you know, I'd brought him home from the hospital until 11 months old. And what that situation was is the, the social agency we were with only adopted to childless couples. and But they were having a hard time finding a home for this particular baby because of his background, and it was really, really tough um, when we had to let him go, and I didn't understand, you know, why God didn't allow us to adopt him. And the thing is, God's ways are not our ways, and I learned at that point in my life, I was learning, God is so gracious, to take us through lessons to prepare us for the big ones. I was learning how to keep praise on my lips, no matter what, and I was learning to um, to be comfortable with crying out to God with everything I was thinking and feeling. And I believe that God is always up to something good, but we just can't see the whole picture. And He can handle our hard questions. He's a big God. He knows our thoughts before we even think them. And so it really wastes our relationship with Him if we don't take time to talk about the things that we're thinking. And I know for me, it's, I mean, bonding with God's kind of a weird thing to say, but it just draws me closer to Him. And I sense His presence so greatly when I'm asking Him those hard questions and when I'm crying out to Him, asking Him why. And I know that why is not always for us to know. But it still is so freeing to ask him why anyway. And sometimes he'll show you and sometimes he won't because his ways are so much bigger and greater than ours. But 
the worst thing you can do is to be angry at God, because I believe God's a good God, but I believe that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that there's an enemy, um, an evil force called Satan, who wants to destroy us. He hates us. He hates humans. And he'll do everything he can to destroy us. And when we forget to put praise on our lips and praise God anyway, in all situations, he wins. And I don't want him to win. And there's always something to praise God for. When I would shut the door and cry because I couldn't get the twins to calm down when they were babies, and I would go in the bathroom and slide down my bathroom door and just sob, I would just praise God they weren't triplets because that was something I could praise God for. Hmm. They were twins, not triplets or quints. And um, you have to have a sense of humor, too. I think God has a sense of humor. I like to think that God laughs when we laugh and that he finds things funny. So that relationship with the Lord that I had was and have, it has just strengthened me more to know that he's very real. You know, he's always there with us. He's in the room. Imagine being in the room, but no one ever says hi. Carla Aikens here on The Intersection. Her website address is Carla, K-A-R-L-A, Aikens.com. Well, you are listening to The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Through that site, you will find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get subscribed to The Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs can be accessed. Also, you can follow me on Twitter and get connected to the Meeting House Facebook page. There's also a link for video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I am Bob Crittenden.